and welcome to Lily High on Life. Or should I say, welcome back, Evan Thornley, to Lily High on Life. Thanks very much, Lily. Uh, as you know, I do two laps of the track in some things in life, so it's good to be back with you. Well, it's not even the second lap as much as how wonderfully articulate you are. And one of the things that I really wanted to delve into that I didn't have time to in our last recording was about faith and religion and God and that whole subject matter which um, is so um, so important even if you don't believe in God or even if you don't believe in religion mm. you do in fact have feelings about it mm. and in Judaism as you well know there are Jews that follow absolutely no religious practices yep. but feel very Zionistic feel yes. very Jewish and then there are others uh, of the conservative variety who are kind of a middle ground mm. you're allowed to do some things but not other things and then the ultra-orthodox which have have also many iterations mm. as well. So with your life, um, when did you first become aware of God or religion or anything like that? Yeah, look, um, as a teenager is the short answer. Um, I, I grew up in a, in a single parent family uh, on welfare and my mum had a number of significant challenges and, and she was not a religious person, so we had no family background. Um, but uh, my best friend in, in primary school, his family were, were, were happy clapper Christians, actually, lovely people. And, you know, they, they were sort of in the business of picking up strays. And, you know, we were a bit free range as kids because of the challenges mum had. So, so they, evangelicals? Yeah, happy yeah, clappers. yeah. Evangelicals so, so they, they, love our they, evangelicals. They, they, they brought me along to their church and, and really treated me very well, looked after me. And uh, I've always been grateful for their kindness. Um, um, and, and part of that was they were obviously hoping that I would become a, a, a faithful Christian. And uh, and so it was wonderful to feel uh, part of a place. It was wonderful to be given uh, a sense of uh, community, a sense of purpose. Um, How old were you? What uh, did you believe? 13, what did you believe I about God? Well, I guess, they, you know, I was learning and listening to their teaching and... and um, I think what's interesting to me as I look back now is that I kind of wanted to believe because I wanted to be part of it because that was the best thing that was happening in my life at that time. But I always, it just always was a bit off center for me. So I sort of tried to be part of it, but it never kind of fully landed for me. And, um, you know, and, and then I, I got to university and, um, uh, my, my girlfriend, uh, when I started university, was uh, was Catholic and very involved, became involved in the Catholic students. So I kind of followed her along, and um, and there was things about that that I liked. But again, it didn't quite land for me. And um, and it's only when I really was exploring Judaism that I encountered the Jewish conception of God, and I realised. And I think this is fascinating to me. I think neither Christians nor Jews generally re realize how different their understanding of God is and how different the religions are. There's an assumption on both sides that, you know, Christianity is sort of a daughter religion of Judaism, as we know, um, and that they're both meant to be monotheistic faiths with the same God. And, you know, that is the historical antecedents. But honestly, I've I found the conceptions of God quite different. And so the and, and I don't mean to insult my Christian friends here, but I'll, I'll just try and articulate 
what I experienced, yes, what I please. was taught, and, and, and how I saw things differently, and what was so profound for me as I encountered the Jewish understanding of God. So I would say from where I sit now, that what I was taught in, in a range of different Christian traditions um, was God reduced to a human scale. The old guy in the sky with the beard. Uh, obviously, the idea that God had a son and that was a person on the—it's uh, what, the, what the climate change activists would call an anthropomorphic view, a human-centered view. Um, and uh, you know, as Jonathan Sachs uh, said, you know that old guy in the sky with the beard—that's Zeus, actually. That's not Hashem, right? I mean, that iconography was taken from the Greek part of the Christian uh, heritage, not from the Hebrew. You know, we don't do that. We don't pretend to do an image of God because, by definition, in our understanding, God is so much greater than that. And 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 uh, to try and reduce God to human scale is a fundamental uh, rejection of the nature of God. And, and you know, God is uh, so much bigger and more mystical a force that, you know, we can and should spend our entire lives beginning to try and understand and apprehend and form relationship with, that to reduce God to human scale and to sort of kind of rather banal human representations, I, I think really, and so really for me, that was part of what I didn't expect because I was already, you know, kind of a de facto member of the Jewish community and I was had this deep relationship with Israel and, and I loved Jewish writing and Jewish history and Jewish philosophy. But as I began to explore Judaism as a faith, I suddenly encountered a much more different understanding of God than I had expected. I kind of thought it was more of the same. And, and so that was when I realized that why this stuff never landed for me in my, in my experience uh, in my early years in Christian churches. Was it because you didn't believe the story or you didn't like some of the rituals or things around? Well, no, it was more actually, I think, about the idea of God. And, and, and you know, the Christian stuff is, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're monotheistically challenged. Let's face it, right? You've got a trinity, right? Which is a theoretical, you, you know, you've kind of got to do a lot of contortions to get that back to a single God and to monotheism. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on there in Christian. And again, I'm not here to, to attack Christianity. And I have many dear Christian friends, including a number of my sisters who are very faithful Christians and wonderful people. But, but for me, uh, that all was a lot of stuff that I never felt completely comfortable with as an, I, an understanding of God. And then as I encountered the Jewish teachings on God, which in many ways are actually much simpler and yet more mystical, um, uh, that I realized that that was always more what I felt God was and that that really resonated for me. And, and so that, that kind of reinforced my existing kind of tendency towards the Jewish community and in a big way. And what about the whole concept of <clears throat> congregations or mm. friends of yours mm. relating to what they were doing and saying and everything in church mm. as opposed to in synagogues mm. or not even opposed? What about what did you observe and see in the way that non-Jews and the different religions practiced and adhered to on a regular basis? Well, well look... Lily, one of the things that I like to say about how I view the world is, and this is at a more intellectual level, um, yeah, you know, I've been exposed to a range of religious experiences and I've been exposed, as you know, to a range of sort of philosophical and political traditions. And any school of thought 
about the human condition and what the good society is and how we should behave. To, whether it's a philosophy or a political ideology or a religious set of teachings, I only ask two things of that school of thought. One, that it is internally coherent, that it doesn't collapse under the weight of its own internal contradictions within 15 minutes of careful scrutiny, and two, that it provides moral clarity, that, that it can give you a guidance on how to act in any given situation. And, you know, the funny thing is, until I really engaged with Judaism, I never encountered a school of thought, political, religious, philosophical, or otherwise, that could satisfy those two conditions. Um, wow. And so, uh, you know, part of my earlier experience in evangelical Christianity uh, was a complete collapse under the weight of its own internal contradictions. Um, and so as a 15-year-old, after a couple of years, I started asking hard questions and I got what I considered to be pretty poor quality answers. Such as? Uh, I mean, uh, uh, so the, the fundamentalist Christians said, look, the, the, the Bible, which by which they meant the Christian New Testament principally, is the unerring word of God. Don't listen to those liberal denominations who kind of, you know, uh, kind of relativize everything you should absolutely take every word of the bible as the word of god and we should follow it faithful i'm like okay got it um and then i'd say okay so this part in the second chapter of acts where it says and everyone in the church sold everything they had and gave it to the poor we don't seem to be doing that how, how does that work <laughs> right good question right i mean like this is the unerring word of God, we've got to do this, you know, and this is where the prosperity doctrines and such things were being preached from the pulpit. And I was just literally confused. I'm like, I, I uh, and, and you'd ask difficult questions like that and you didn't get good answers. And so I started going, well, hang on a minute, you, you, you're not practicing what you're preaching here. You, you, you say that we should interpret the Bible this way or, uh, you know, even stuff that I wasn't necessarily arguing for, but it said, you know, it said here in some part of the New Testament, I forget where, it's been a long time since I read it, you know, that women should cover their heads in church, right? Which actually, you know, in Orthodox Judaism, this is also true. They didn't do that. I'm like, okay, I'm confused. How come we don't do that? It says right here, like it's in plain black and white in the text. So, so um, the, I began to apprehend that there were a series of views and values and agendas that were convenient to the leadership of the organization that were in contradiction to its stated set of beliefs and and heaven knows and so that's just, not unusual right but so did that bother you or yeah. did you just let it go yeah no no it bothered me and ultimately as a 15 year old i kind of went yeah i'm not i'm not i'm not buying okay. what you're selling here right um and so you know what what i've found with judaism is that it has been the first sort of system of thought that I do feel is internally coherent. You, you know, the, the, you can dive into the endlessly deep pool of Jewish wisdom and you can go as deep as you like. And the, and the you know, the, you, 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 you'll forgive the mixed metaphor. I mean, you're standing on the shoulders of giants. You've got three and a half thousand years of distilled wisdom here. You've got, you know, an entire system of thought that all comes back to the Torah you know, to a grounded place. And everything is built on top of that and it's all internally consistent. A and you can get moral clarity. That doesn't mean things are easy. Actually, one of the things that I think is most extraordinary about Judaism and most different 
in ways that, again, most Jews don't realise, is the extent to which we recognise moral ambiguity. That almost any human conflict or human situation is complex and nuanced, and there's, there's a lot of different ways of looking at it from a lot of different people's perspectives, right? I mean, and this is the Talmud, right? right. You know, 17 different perspectives on every issue, and every time you hear somebody else's argument, Rabbi, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and you go, oh, gee, that's a pretty good argument. And then Rabbi so-and-so says something else, and you go, oh, gee, that's a pretty good argument too. That doesn't drive you crazy. <laughs> you know, uh, well, I mean, it's difficult, but like that's that's real life, you know, real life. Human beings are difficult. Living in a family, in a community, in a society is difficult. There are difficult moral problems and 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 they require an intensity of thought and understanding and listening and, and a willingness to hear the other person's point of view. And Judaism celebrates that complexity. Um, and, you know, Catholicism, for example, is, you know, the Pope says, and it's top down, right? Then, then that's that's it, right? I mean, uh, ain't no one's the Pope in Judaism, right? <laughs> so, you know, two, Jews, three so, opinions, right? That's not what we do. So, but you have total moral clarity on the fact that there is indeed a God, and it's a Jewish God. Oh, uh, well, moral clarity, I think, is about guiding action. Uh, I think a belief in God is something different to that. I don't think anyone has certainty about about that. Um, I think that I, I have a number of thoughts about God um, that are helpful, that are helpful yeah. to me and, and may or may not be helpful to others. So the, the first thought I have, well, here's a simple place to start. I would prefer to live in a universe that has justice than one that has none. Uh, that's just, I, I, I would I would like that life better. But evolution um, won't, wouldn't have justice. Uh, no, um, uh, but a universe that has a God that is just does have justice. And right. ultimately there are consequences for people doing good and bad things. So I, I like that as an idea. I would prefer to live in, in, in a world where that was true because it's actually a bit depressing to think of a world where there is no justice, right? A universe where there is no justice. So that's that's probably a minor thing, but it's, it's not nothing. Okay. Um, I, I think the conversation I often have with people, there's a couple of conversations I often have with my Jewish friends. The first is that uh, people often say to me, well, I don't believe in God. I'm like, hmm, okay, tell me about this God you don't believe in. And they'll start describing the God. And it's really the the, the Christian God, right? It's the, the, the old guy in the sky with a beard. And I'm like, okay, I don't believe in that God either. So we're even on that. But but that's not the Jewish God you're describing. That's the Christian God. I mean, at least at least have the self-respect to be a Jewish atheist, not a Christian atheist. You know, like, you know, you're describing a version of God that's really been put to you by the secular media in parody of Christianity. And you're saying you don't believe in that parody of the Christian God and with good reason, right? Because that's a silly idea for God, but that's actually not, that's not our tradition. So let's not confuse ourselves with the God we don't believe in. The second thing I say to people is, and this is confronting for people, um, uh, you, you know, most people who um, who like to take issue with the existence of God, and I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you prove or don't prove the existence of God. So I'm always intrigued by people who are very strongly, uh, either way, actually, but particularly very strongly convinced that there is no God. I'm like, how can you be convinced of that? I mean, maybe there is, maybe there isn't, but, um, but, but, 
and, and typically they tend to resort to this is the kind of Richard Dawkins school, you know, the, uh, you know, well, I, I believe in reason, you know, not superstition. I believe in empirical evidence and science and hey, so do I, right? Uh, and I'm like, okay, I, I got that. I understand that. So let's work that through. So um, on the basis of reason and logic, whether God exists or not is entirely independent of the question of whether you believe in God or not. Okay. Either God exists or God doesn't exist. Whether you believe in God is irrelevant to the question of whether God exists or not. Mm. So I don't see that you can draw much comfort from the fact of saying, well, I don't believe in God, as therefore somehow abrogating the possibility that if God exists, that that might be consequential and that that was something you have to attend to, right? Um, <laughs> Interesting you know, argument. God doesn't go away because you don't believe in God. Uh, God may or may not be there, but the existence of God has got nothing to do with what you believe. The existence of God is, a, is, is either an empirical fact or it isn't. Um, it's got nothing to do with your subjective beliefs. So that's always confusing for people because... Um, Absolutely. Right. And, and so a lot of what I see is, um, and again, there are a lot of people very thoughtful who are quite troubled by this question and are, are deeply agnostic in, I think, a really thoughtful way, and, and which I totally respect. Um, but but I'm, always, I'm always intrigued by people who have less uncertainty. Um, and, um, and, and so... Um, have you also come across the reasons why well, well, God I, does absolutely exist and well, no, Torah is no, correct? I, I, can't, I can't prove any they, of that. Yeah, but, 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 but part of what I think is interesting to me about the opposite view, right, is... Um, oh, sorry, I, I, had a, I had a really key thought. I'll come, like, come back yeah. to that in a second. But um, I was just going to say that within the Torah, it actually, um, they talk about kashrut. Mm. They mention every single kosher animal yeah. and bird, and it was written so long ago, mm. the Torah, and no other animals or birds have been found in all these thousands mm. of years. So they say this is proof that this that the Torah was from God. Right. Um, and then they have other numerical sequence things. I think Asha Torah or something does a whole right. course for the disbelievers. Yeah, look, and I've seen a number of, um, of, uh, of sort of efforts to prove the existence of God. I, for me, I don't... I don't find that necessary for whatever reason. It sounds to me like a lot of what draws you to Judaism is the intellectual exercise of what has been and what is still. Well, well, it's almost, I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of intellectual satisfaction in pursuing these questions and they are the central questions of life. But for me, actually, it's much more experiential, right? So I, I start with, you know, I can't prove or disprove that God exists, okay? But I'm an empiricist, so I believe in reason. Okay, here's what I do know, and this is an interesting test for people. What I do know for me, this is just for me, I'm not telling anyone else to do anything else. All I know is for me, um, uh, the greater the extent to which I follow the Torah and 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 live an observant Jewish life, the better my life goes. Okay. Interesting observation. So that's cool for me. I, I like that part, right? Like th that's an empirical observation, right? Right. Um, we can debate why that might be the case. It could be, you know, it could be that, that that just deludes me into being happier. Who knows? But but nevertheless, as a practical matter, um, that has 
that has been my experience. As a practical matter, there have been many things in halacha that when I've encountered them for the first time, I go, gee, that's a weird idea, or why do we do that? And, um, and But over time, I've come to a default view that if the tradition has arrived at this position with three and a half thousand years behind it, they've probably thought about it more than I have. So I'll accept on faith that this is what we're doing. And I suspect that over time it may become apparent to me why this is what we do. And that has happened just many, many times. So now I'm sort of like, okay, okay. So I don't understand why there's this particular halakas, but I'll, I'll, I'll follow it. Um, uh, but but I, I suspect that in time I'll probably go, ah, that's why we did that. I didn't think of that, you know? So, so there's a certain humility required to say, whatever I might be able to dream up in my short life and with all the other distractions I have is less likely to be cogent than what we've distilled in three and a half thousand years of tradition, just all other things being equal. The idea that I might invent something of my own that is more cogent than than an entire civilization is, you know, probably reasonably low. So I'll at least default. I'm not saying I accept things unthinkingly, um, but, but in many times over time I've found Oh, gee, there's real wisdom behind this that I hadn't thought of. So, Evan, could you just, for those that that don't know, Mm -hmm. could you please walk us through your experience um, as a convert from the the start? Like, why did you even decide, yes, I'm going to do this, Mm -hmm. and then what did you have to do? Because I know they discourage convert. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, they didn't try and discourage me too hard. I mean, by the time I got to the orthodox based in, apart from the fact that I'd already done a conservative conversion, um, and they said, uh, look, one of the things, Evan, when you convert, you know, it's important to develop a relationship with the land of Israel and, you know, understand this, and you might want to consider visiting and stuff. And I said, look, I've been 36 times. I'm happy to go again if that helps. And they're like... (laughs) Yeah, okay, no, you seem to be committed. (laughs) So that didn't push me away too much. But I I mean, you know, the first thing, obviously, about my personal journey, and and it's very much the minority experience, I think. Uh, I talk about myself, I invented a phrase that, I don't know if it makes sense to others, but I call a conviction convert. And that's not to say that others don't have conviction, but, you know, probably 90% of Jews are born Jews, maybe 10% are converts, I don't know. Of the converts, probably 90% convert principally as part of a marriage commitment. And that doesn't mean that they're not serious about their Judaism, as we know many are. In fact, many often drag their Jewish partner to a more observant life. But, um, and then there's the walk-ins, right? Like me, <laughs> just walk in off the street, apropos of nothing at all. And so, um, and so generally, I, I think, in my experience, people have been more, ex- find it easier to accept that, that I'm, committed right and so what's the process so so you know here's and 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 i hear a lot of people saying you know i think it's terrible that they have to do all this stuff and all this study and all these exams and all these things and i'm sort of like gee i don't know i don't see how you can sign up for something that you don't understand right i mean you're asking to become a jew to become a member of the jewish people to uh uh, what are you signing? Like, what? What are you signing up for? Right? If you don't understand what it means to be Jewish, if you don't understand what our beliefs are, what our practices are, what our lifestyle is, then then you don't really understand what you're converting to. So it seems to me self-evident that in order for someone to make an informed decision to wish to convert, that they need to understand what they're converting to, yeah. and that necessarily, because as we know, there's a lot of complexity in Judaism, that necessarily means a lot of learning. 
So and, 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 but interestingly, and I think in my conservative conversion, it was a fairly intellectual process, which, to be honest, was easy for me. I, I, I like learning, and there was a lot of conceptual kind of big ideas, and, and I love that. My orthodox conversion was much harder, but for me personally, even more valuable, which was it didn't start with big concept and big ideas. Like we started with modehani, first first lesson, first day. Okay, what's the blessing you say when you wake up in the morning? So it start. It was much more about practice, right? Um, and I think one of the things I see a lot uh, in many of my Jewish friends who find the tradition doesn't speak to them, and many of them have gone through Jewish day schools, and they're taught the what of halakha. You know, you need to do this, you need to do that, and don't do this and do do that, and all what I call the mechanics. But they're not necessarily taught the why. You know, and if you don't have an understanding of why we're doing these things, then yeah, it is kind of, it's a lot of work and, and it's kind of confusing and it, it doesn't, you know, so, so for me, you know, a lot of observance boils down to simply this. Um, you know, as we say in Modehani, the soul you gave me is pure, right? There's Jewish teaching, completely different to Christianity, which is about the doctrine of original sin and underneath it all, you're all bad. Okay, in Judaism, quite the opposite. Underneath it, you know, the soul Hashem has given us is pure. And so a lot of what we do in our life and a lot of the rituals of daily observance in my mind are to bring me back to that, to bring me back to my essence, to bring me back to my core, to bring me back to that spark within me that is from Hashem and to help me overcome the dumb decisions and distractions that I come into and, and bring me back to the path, bring me back to trying to be that person that I could be the best of me. And and so, you know, when I'm saying a bracha, you, you, you know, uh, I'm eating food or I've been to the bathroom or, you know, or I'm wearing my tzitzit or whatever. You know, part of the part of that is simply, okay, so this gives me 50 or 60 excuses a day or whatever it is to just stop for a moment and go, okay, I want to come back to being that essence, that pure, the, the person I could be, the person, the, my highest and best self. And as you're saying so, that, as you're saying that, I can see that it actually gives you pleasure. It really, it really does, you know, and... Um, and so, you know, I mean, goodness knows. I mean, I need all the help I can get to try and be the, <laughs> the, the higher and best version of myself. And I think most of us do. So, so you know, there's a lot of complexity in our ritual life and in the, the, the halakha that surrounds it. But to me, there is a governing why, which is just to help bring me back every day to want to be that. I start, you know, I'm with, I'm with the grumpy old man at 6.50 every morning, you know, davening. And, and that's a good way to start my day. And it reminds me of who I want to be, what I should be grateful for, what, what I'm caring about, the people I'm praying for. The, you know, that what, what a good place to centre yourself to start your day, you know? Gosh, that's good. I really, really like that. Yeah, so, yeah, so for me, that's a lot of what an observant life is, is about. The fact that we're so meticulous about what we eat. Okay, and so we should be we should be meticulous about what we we should be grateful for everything that we're given, and we should be grateful for it on a daily basis. Absolutely, fully you know? agree with that. So, so I think there's there's meaning and value behind the halakas because without that, it is dry and mechanical, and comp and confusing, and seems pointless to a lot of Jews. And I think that's a real shame. Hmm. Um, I've got to ask you, you without religion are an extremely busy guy you're an entrepreneur you've mm. got a lot of things going your time seems like it's always been at a premium mm. and this takes time yeah how do you reconcile that 
Well, it does, and 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 worse than that for me personally, right? I, I like to say, you know, I'm a you you would understand. I'm a I'm an artistic personality. Okay, I mean, I was never the self disciplined. I mean, I grew up a bit free range. I kind of had to bring myself up, and and that didn't mean that I got a lot of structural disciplines in my life. And I was lucky to have some ability and was able to succeed in a bunch of things. But heaven knows, not because I was well organized or disciplined or structured. Um, and, and so not just the time actually, but the rigor and discipline and structure of, of being an observant Jew, I'll be honest, it's hard for me. Uh, maybe it's hard for everyone. Which part, know. which parts? Uh, to, to, to structure my day, to, to, to make sure that I'm, I'm ready to daven each, each day. And I, and I should be clear, I'm not, I'm not the perfectly observant Jew. I, I'm Yet. Do, um, but my, my observance is increasing. Um, but, but, but what I would say for me personally has been that being hard has also meant it's more valuable. It's 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 made a bigger difference to my so life. It's actually talking, brought some structure and discipline so and routine to someone who could have done with a bit of that. So yeah. whilst it's a big investment of time, it's it's also helped um, me live a better and more effective life. So you're specifically talking about things like the prayer when you get up, the prayer after going to the bathroom, the prayer after eat, before eating. Well, and and, and, the, and the davening. You know, the davening is a time commitment. And the davening right? you know, at, at certain what, times you know, of the day as well. The morning and about the same in the evening and you know that's a bit that's a big commitment um and then yeah. what about the um the planning plan you know to 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 manage your cash route you kind of got to be organized right you, absolutely but you, you just it, it brings a certain amount of discipline to your life which honestly is pretty good for you certainly good for me um because yeah. i'm not naturally a disciplined person so it's hard but uh, because it's hard. It's actually Gosh, I find that so interesting with yeah. what you've done that you would say that you're not disciplined because um, to start up companies and run and manage them, you've got to be very, I would imagine, pretty disciplined and committed. Oh, well, committed, yes. Passionate, yes. Intense, yes. But in terms of structure and consistency and discipline, no, not not. That's not been my strong suit. I love working with people who are really good like that because yeah. it's not it's not my Thank natural. God you can hire people. Yeah, not my natural game, as they say in the cricket commentary. Um, yeah. So, and what about the frills? What about um, things like the shiurim and the studying with uh, with rabbis or groups? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, again, just the endlessly deep pool of Jewish wisdom and and. Um, do you have yeah. some groups or some types? Yeah, I, I have a I have a sure that Robbie Berkovitz leads on Thursday nights. That's been just a, just a wonderful, wonderful part of my life. And you know, mate, it's Thursday night. I'm wrecked, right? I've been going hard yeah. at it all week, and I'm like, oh, do I have to get the sure tonight. And every single time I get to the end, and I'm energized, yeah, you know, and um, and you know, we've learned really interesting things and 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 it's a fascinating diverse group of five of us in that particular issue uh, right across the political spectrum right across the well robert's religious pretty spectrum. amazing himself i mean yeah. a doctor and a lawyer oh, i mean yeah how many mothers do you have oh yeah <laughs> and and so so that's been fantastic for me you know we're reading Yoshua at the moment and i'm like hang on a minute why have I literally never heard, and I, okay, I'm new to this, but most people I know have literally never heard the story of when we crossed the Jordan into Eretz Israel, right? We all know the story of the Yom Suf, of the, of the, 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 you know, the exit from Egypt and the beginning of the 40 years. 
But the, the whole story of the moment when Yeshua leads the Jewish people across the Jordan into Eretz Israel, and what happened at that moment is just something I never actually heard the details of and it turns out that there's some really powerful and interesting things happening at this moment wow. and and most of us and you know the, the folks in my shore most of us like how come this never gets a run right i mean i went to base rifka and right. i don't i don't remember the right. story you, you know so i mean it's kind of fascinating right? yeah um, Certain things in our tradition and text get get a lot of code. We know them well, often because they come up in a pasha. So you kind of read them and you read the commentary in that in that in that pasha week and whatever. But uh, but other things not so much. So there's so much so much to learn. Yeah. So it's it starts with the conversion, but there's a whole lot more after that. Um, yeah. That keeps yeah. that I mean, keeps the, going the as well. Was just a, do you a station along the, Do you find yeah. that um, that you integrate what you learn or things from the shiur you find yourself talking about aspects of that within a context that has nothing to do with judaism or in a meeting with non-jews oh sure and not just from the shiur but i mean again uh, as i think i mentioned uh, you know rabbi jonathan Sachs was an enormous influence on me and and so much of what I learned from Rabbi Sachs, I, I share constantly with people, y- 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 you know, about life. You know, I, I remember the first time I read this, in, and I can't even remember where it was, in which book, but where Sachs said something that when I read it, I thought was the most sort of simplistic thing I'd heard. And I thought it was kind of disappointed that he'd say something so simplistic when the world is so complex. But he said, you know, ultimately, the, the, the only source of satisfaction in our lives is our relationships. He's an amazing. And and as I've meditated on that over the last eight or nine years, every day, the more I believe that is true. And I share that a lot with my friends, secular friends, non-Jewish friends. You know, I'm often talking to people. You know, we're in the educated upper middle class. Everyone's a citizen of the world and they travel and they move and they go to Hong Kong and they go to New York and all that stuff. I've done all that stuff, right? And you'll hear people talking about, you know, we're not sure whether we want to live here or whether, you know, the weather's better in California or whatever. And they'll they'll talk about all these criteria about where they're going to live. And I'll say to them, where are the people that you care about the most and that you love and that love you the most? Where are they? Okay, why on earth would you not live there? Forget the climate. Forget the how good the restaurants are. Like, what matters? It right? That's Rabbi Sachs's influence yeah. on me. So, y- you know, these things are central to life. Absolutely wonderful. I want to thank you for going into this a little bit further yeah. because it really is something that people just aren't aware of, mm. and you've as I fully expected, (laughs) articulated it really beautifully. Um, One of the things that I did not get a chance to ask you about in our first interview was about your current project, which I understand is about um, providing affordable housing um, for people. Or well, it's well, more I, than that. Is I, I it twofold? Yeah, well, uh, so Lily, uh, people say to me, well, what are you doing, Evan? Because, you know, I've done a lot of interesting things. They say, what are you up to now? And I say, well, look, in our tribe, we all start out, we used to start out in schmutters and end up in property. Okay? <laughs> now we all start out in tech and end up in property. property. You know? <laughs> so the end game is still the same. So um, so I've, this is probably my longest lived startup. We've been working on this for seven years now. Uh, my business partner Anthony Cohen and I um, building a company called Longview. Property is a long game, and um, I, I think 
what we're trying to do is to simultaneously address just the crushing social problems in this country in so many different aspects of the housing ecosystem and at the same time try to enable a more satisfactory investment environment for people to invest in the asset class. And it turns out, we think, and we're trying to build a platform and a set of funds that will enable this to happen, that those two things are actually mutually compatible. That actually the current system um, and the way it works, both the rental system and a lot of what happens in helping people try and buy a home isn't working for anyone. And and you know the sort of pointless battles about you know should we be more pro landlord or more pro tenant i'm like guys the rental system's not working for either landlords or tenants let's build a different system if we built a system of inf- of, of of institutional ownership of housing um the the money flows for investors could happen separately from the physical flow of assets and so um, the investors could get higher quality investments and greater liquidity and diversity and returns and less headaches from being a landlord and at the same time we could provide more dignified and secure housing for the people that live in those dwellings. So what does that actually mean that a company like yours would actually own the well, well, so we're asset? Well we're, we're just in the business now of, so we, we started our business just doing rental property management because it was done really badly because almost all rental property management is done by sales agents and they care about sales, not property management. Um, We wanted to see it done well. So we started that seven years ago. We now manage 4,300 properties. So we've got big quick um, and and we're on probably only two or three in the country that are in more than one state. So we're now in Queensland. I hope we'll go to New South Wales. We did that well. Then I analysed the investment performance of our clients' properties that, that we were managing on their behalf and it was terrible. It was 280 basis points below housing market average. And so I realized actually they bought the wrong assets. There's not much point in helping mum and dad landlords be successful by managing their assets. Well, if, if, they, if you didn't help them buy the right assets. So then we, we built a buyer's advisory team, got a bunch of folks who've you know, been, been buyer's advisors and buyer's advocates for 20 years and paired them up with a data science team that's analyzed every sale price of every property in Australia for 50 years and worked out what are the drivers of capital growth. And so now we think we know how to buy property really well and we know how to manage that property really well. And so now we think we're in a position to deploy capital and to build investment funds in residential property. And the weirdest thing about Australia is the single biggest asset class in the country by a factor of two and a half, you know, two and a half times the entire Australian Stock Exchange and everything on it, existing dwelling residential property equity is a seven trillion dollar asset class without a single investment grade fund if you want to buy commercial property there's any number of REITs that are in you know distribution warehouses or medical facilities or retail or office or or whatever that's a one trillion dollar asset class the seven trillion dollar asset class which is existing dwelling residential property there's not a single investment grade fund and so you can't invest in that asset class in the way that you, most people would like to invest in an asset class. I can put some money in, I can take it out, I can put in more, I can put in less. Um, there's somebody professionally managing it and making sure I'm buying the right assets. You know, all the things that, you, you know, you can buy a, an index fund in the stock market, you can buy managed funds, you can buy commercial property REITs, you can buy crypto funds, right? But you can't buy anyone has got, no one has got a fund to allow you to buy into the residential property asset class. The only way you can do it is to buy your own property. As a landlord, 71% of landlords only own one property. That's all their eggs in one basket. Most of them bought the wrong assets. 
about two thirds of them on our analysis would have actually been better off financially to have stuck their money in super than to have bought the assets they bought. And that's not because you can't make good money in resi property, but, be, but because most people systematically buy the wrong assets. So are you looking to propose a new, um, a new sector of investment yep. whereby you're going to offer investment property owners an additional leverage on their property by joining you with an ongoing well, payment? Well, what, what, what I want is for people to be able to invest in residential property. I'd rather own 1% of 100 properties than 100% of one property. Right, right. So that's what I'm all, getting at. All the more so if those 100 properties were all selected by people who really knew what they were doing. Right? So are you looking at starting from scratch and building, we're building these residential, yeah. resident, not incorporating existing? Uh, look, what we're thinking about when we do get to a rental property fund, and we're actually doing a different fund first, which is actually what's called a shared equity fund in home ownership. I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, the second fund, I hope, will be a rental property fund. We are looking at having what we call a roll-in provision, so people could actually just roll an existing property into the fund in exchange for units in the fund, or, or they could just put capital into it. So I think we'll probably have both mechanisms, at least at some point down the track. Interesting. I love that. It sounds fabulous, yeah. as long as don't get the government involved, but you have to get the government involved because you would need... I would rather poke my eye out with a fork than run any business that requires me to get the government to do anything so yeah uh, and this is you, you know every debate about every important issue in this country for better or worse and often on both sides of politics starts out with somebody saying the government order do this yeah, or that yeah, yeah. and i look at the australian housing system and everything that's wrong with it and i'm like and if your theory of change is the government order well the government ain't gonna the government on all sides yeah. Has not has this these problems housing affordability, um, the 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 dreadfully undignified rental situation that we have in this country, um, the poor returns to investors, including landlords in most cases, um, uh, has been getting worse for forty years. Shocking. So if we're waiting for the government to do something like that's Forget not a viable it. theory of change. We, we're trying to build a we're trying to liberate private capital to fix these problems ourselves in ways that deliver better returns to investors and a more dignified housing solution to the people who live in the dwellings. Yeah, love that. You know, we watch every day on the news in Sydney they were talking about how people themselves are offering above market rental prices really, it's a train wreck. just to get it. Right. Absolutely. And, and and it's a train wreck that no matter what governments do now, um, the supply shortage is such in the rental market, and look, I deal with this every day, right? Yeah, We've met yeah, 4,000 rental properties. Um, uh, we will be in the worst housing crisis of a generation in the next six months, and there's nothing any government can do about wow. it now. It's too late. That yeah. It's gonna take two or three years to get new supply out of the ground, right? So, And, and this is gonna have catastrophic impact on yeah. tens of thousands of people. Well, thank God you've had the experience you've had in the past, which I'm sure will bode well for you with this new venture as well, which sounds so. extremely exciting and um, also beneficial throughout. Thank, yeah, you thank you so much for being a guest and for sharing on Lily High on Life. Lovely. Thanks very much, Lily.